As we get into the morning, I'm going to ask you this question, to think just for a moment about the worst thing you've done. I know we don't like thinking about bad things, but just whatever you can think of. In many instances, there's likely a decent chance that you've done worse than what you're thinking of. You may not know it, but whatever that is, think of it. Think about perhaps the worst thing you've said to someone and all of the damage that that has caused. Think about a relationship in your life that has been hindered because of your actions. I have relationships that aren't the same today because of things that I did in a moment. And it just burns a bridge and it causes frustration and it causes harm. Think about that time you said you'd be there and you weren't there. Or you made a promise and you didn't keep it. What has that done? What is the worst of you that you can remember? What's the topic that you don't want to have written about on your tombstone and you hope very few people know about or find out about? Now, multiply that over an entire culture, an entire people. It looks a lot like all of us. All of us. We all live in this sea of regret and bad decisions and frustration and worry and anxiety and doubt and sin and wrongdoing. We have relationships that we've harmed. We have things that we've done against our friends, our spouse, whatever. All of our ugliness fully exposed if it could be. It'd be hard to think that we could be forgiven for that, that the Lord might be merciful toward us, but he is. It might be hard to think that we can't find forgiveness, but we can. A city full of people like you being forgiven, you can find it. Why? Because God is merciful. It's hard to realize that God actually pursues us and is merciful, that he longs to be merciful, that he delights in being merciful. We delight in seeing people get what they deserve. God delights in being in a relationship with his created people. And so he gives mercy time and time again. He chooses mercy. He gives us opportunities to turn from our sin and to enjoy a relationship with him. You might have heard it like this, and these are always these little kind of ways that are oversimplified but helpful. But mercy is uh, not getting what you deserve. You've heard of the mercy rule in baseball, Right? Uh, like our kids are in Little League and the team's up by too much and there's no chance for them to come back. Mercy rule, right? Now we just call it a run rule because mercy sounds different. Or if you're playing that game, you know the game, you might call it uncle, where you have somebody's hands and you're pushing back and forth and then you try to stay in it, but the moment you have to say mercy. Or if you've watched Black Panther and it's like tap out, right? Yield and you have to yield and the other person has to then relent from the pain that was going to come. We're familiar, in a sense, culturally with mercy, but when we think about it in relationship to God, it changes 
our view and our understanding of what mercy is. Fundamentally, for us, it comes in the person and work of Jesus Christ who took the punishment that we deserved upon himself so that God might be merciful to us through faith in him, faith in the work of the Son, that we could avoid the punishment that was coming for our sin. So today we're going to look at God's mercy in Jonah. This is the Old Testament. Jesus, though the Son, eternal as God, Father, Son, and Spirit, Jesus the revealed Son of God had not come into the world yet, and we still, though, see God acting in the way that he has always and will always be acting with his creation, which is mercifully. Jonah chapter 3, just verses 1 through 10. All of chapter 3, these are short chapters. They're 10 or 11 verses each, except for chapter 1. Jonah was given a call to go and preach. Remember that, chapter one? He ran instead of obeying. He gets thrown overboard at the end of chapter one and the fish swallows him up, gulp. And he prays, that was yesterday, or last, uh, last week. And he has his prayer. He's not sure how God's gonna restore it, but God is again restoring. And this fish vomits Jonah up on dry land, and that is where we enter. Enter. You might think, if you just think about the story and you think about human relationships, what comes next? Oh, punishment and God's anger. Right? Because you want the person who wronged you or who didn't listen to you, you want that person to feel it. You want them to know that they did wrong. And so you have to spend some time in the doghouse, don't you? You have to spend some time feeling bad about what you did. So the fish vomits Jonah up on dry land, and then the Lord can go, all right, get over there for a while and stand in the corner. Ah, but that is not what God does. And that is not how God acts. Look at Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then... The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with a sackcloth, and sat in ashes are all signs of sorrow, sadness, and repentance turning. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? 
God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented, had mercy, he relented from the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Pray with me. Father, we see, we are speaking now, interacting with the one who had mercy on the Ninevites. We are speaking to the same God who called Jonah. We are engaging with you. Even as we read this, we're able to speak to you. Thank you for that. And teach us from Jonah chapter 3 that we might understand your mercy even more fully. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. This is a passage of God's action and people's responses. In fact, it's going to be similar. You're going to see a parallel between 1 and 3, chapters 1 and 3, and 2 and 4. In chapters 1, God gives a call, Jonah disobeys. In chapter 2, he prays. In chapter 3, God gives a call, Jonah obeys. But then in chapter 4, he prays. His prayer in chapter 2 is a prayer that is full of praise and thanksgiving, and his prayer in chapter 4 is a prayer that's full of frustration and bitterness. So he's called and he disobeys and he prays. He's called and he obeys and he prays. We see that theme. But in chapter 1, just like the sailors turned and they were trying to seek God and Jonah was not, in chapter 3, the Ninevites turn. And they're an example of responding to God's message. Jonah is not that example. Chapter 1, 2, 3, you could maybe argue 2, but 1, 3, and 4, especially when you get to 4, you see Jonah's not the example that we're going for. The sailors and the Ninevites, the Gentiles, are the ones who are turning. Jonah's the one who's frustrated. We're going to look at the first two verses. We see God's second call to Jonah. The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city. Call out against it the message that I tell you. Well, it sounds similar to chapter 1, verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The only difference is that last part. Their evil has come up before me, the reasoning. Call out the message that I give you in chapter 3. So Jonah, someone who has felt the discipline of the Lord, being the correction of God coming through the fish, is there on dry land. He can't Uber home. He might not even know where he is. And while he might feel as if he's done for and that God is done with him, that's actually not what we see. The word came a second time. This is God's mercy. This is his grace towards us. He's bringing Jonah into, back into the story. He's using Jonah to declare his message to the Ninevites. Jonah is getting another chance at obedience. This is why I will say to you or anybody that if you're uh, walking with people as they're trying to grow in faith and they make an error or you make an error, you're not done for. 
For as long as you still have breath, you are able to obey. For as long as you're still alert and awake and aware, you're still able to obey. Even if for the past three years you have been living in disobedience in a specific direction, you can turn because God is gracious and God is merciful. He is patient with us and desires for us to turn. If you know the Lord today, you know that's his character. The one who follows God, who is trusted in Christ, does not live in constant fear that they're going to ruin something or that they can destroy God's plans or forever disrupt God's heart because God is bigger than that. Anyone here who is listening, if you're here, you're listening, not lost hope that you can obey. If there are areas of obedience or disobedience of which you are aware and you've resisted, perhaps the Lord is even coming to you now a second time and say, go, do it, serve, declare. And I want you also to look though in verse two at how God gives the call. And this is important for us. God says, go to Nineveh and call out against it the message that I tell you. God is the one, and God is the one who is calling the message. He gets to prescribe what is said. So the preacher, the teacher, the evangelist, the one who engages, that person is not the one who makes up the message. But we go and we declare the message that God has given. This honestly should give us a great amount of comfort because we don't have to go and try and make up words. What do I need to say that's going to make them respond the right way? Now, when I craft a sermon, if craft is the right word, I write a sermon, build a sermon, structure a sermon, I'm thinking about the ones who would be listening. I'm going, what could I say that could help them? How could I engage in ways that would help them? So Jonah doesn't go to Nineveh and speak a language they don't understand, that's not how it works. But ultimately, I don't bring Hans's words. I shouldn't. No preacher who preaches here should bring just their ideas in hopes that it does some kind of formation in you that is not lasting. We want to preach God's ideas. And we want to preach God's heart. And that's what God says to Jonah. Go to Nineveh and declare, cry out against it the message that I tell you. We bring God's message. And this is important for us because we like to think about things in regard, and, and, and I guess I'd say like this. <clears throat> if we talk about the Lord in matters of, well, this is what I believe, and not in matters of this is what is true, then what we say to them or what we're saying to somebody is we're giving them an out because they can just respond with, well, I don't believe that. I know you believe that, and that's something that's very comfortable in our culture today is to say, well, this is my truth. This is what I believe to be true. This is what I've seen to be true. This is what has demonstrated itself as true. And the Christian, which can come across as arrogant, and the only reason it's not arrogant is because we didn't create it. The Lord created it. And so we, as gracious recipients of God's grace, need to also say, hey, this is, this is what is true. I didn't manufacture it as true, I don't just think it's true. 
I don't just go, well, you know, it'd be nice if it were true, but you speak it because it is true. And that, even for the believer today, there are times when we are encounter truths in scriptures that make us a little uncomfortable, isn't it? Aren't there those times? Times where we go, oh, I know I'm not doing that. I wouldn't have made it like that. I wouldn't have told the story like that. I wouldn't have asked that. And so we too, and that's what keeps us in this humble position, we too are constantly realizing that there are things that are true that might be different than how we feel or even might be different than what we want to be true if we could just write the story. We contend with truth. And we, as believers, are brokers, in a sense, in truth. That's, that, that's our currency, things that God has said. We leave it at that. So Jonah's given a second chance, and he does take it. He wasn't thrown away a shot, to quote the Hamilton musical, for the three of you who got that. Verse 3, Jonah rose, went to Nineveh. According to the word of the Lord, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days journey in breadth. And he went into the city, and he went a day's journey, and he called out, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So he goes according to the word of the Lord, and the city's called great, a three days journey. And different ideas exist. Now, what does a three days journey mean? Because if you look at the unearthed Nineveh, you go, it doesn't take you three days just to walk through the city. That seems a little silly. Nineveh wasn't that big. But it was a large city. It wasn't the size of Houston or even the expanse of spring. The walled portion of the city might have been a couple of miles, a few miles wide. Three days? think first what we read is they're trying to say this city is bigger than the cities that we're usually a part of it is a big city and also to effectively perhaps preach and minister in Nineveh so that people could hear it it's not like you just kind of sat down and you walk through it and you're like hey 40 days and you just kind of go through it and then when you get through it you're done but the constant preaching and stopping and preaching and stopping would take some time to get through such a big city it would take a while to get even through my neighborhood so we're learning about the expanse of the city and Jonah goes into it and he travels and he preaches God's message because God called him again and Jonah goes this time and he preaches the message 40 days and judgment will come and I I like this message Because everybody, everybody will face judgment. It may not be in 40 days. But all of us meet the Lord. And those who have faith in Jesus will be judged based upon Jesus' faithfulness. And those who not place faith in Jesus will be judged upon their faithfulness and without Jesus faithfulness evades us it escapes us and so though it may feel as if our judgment is delayed 40 days is pretty quick all of us face that message 40 days when you die it is appointed for men to die once and then comes judgment when you die 
You meet the Lord. So what happens then? That's why we want to look to Jesus. And that's why we also can look to the Ninevites. My argument here for us is we will see a lot of ourselves in Jonah, but we should see a lot more of ourselves in Nineveh. Evil people who didn't know the Lord, but God sends a gracious messenger to go and hear a message that transforms. I have much more in common with an Ninevite than I do with Jonah. I was an outsider. Ephesians chapter 2 describes us as such, especially for Gentiles. Aliens, away from, outside of the promises, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive. So the message goes, and the word travels quickly. Verses 5 through 9 shows us their response. Jonah has responded to the Lord. Jonah has preached. Now the Ninevites are responding to the Lord's message. The repentant response of Nineveh. And there might have been events in the past that made Nineveh attentive, sensitive to the message that was coming. We aren't precisely sure, but we do know that these cultures were exceedingly religious, and when a prophet gives a message, they might be apt to listen. But after the message, we see different responses, and then we are given the reason. Looks like there's a summary statement in verse 5, and then what happens with the king in verse 6. So the summary statement is verse 5. The people in Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth and the greatest to the least. Then we go to the king. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. He is mourning over his sin. He is showing visually. He is showing how he feels about what is coming. He issued a proclamation and he publishes it through Nineveh by the decree of the king. Let no man nor beast, all of us, herd nor flock, taste anything. Everybody's fasting. Animals, adults, we're all fasting. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands because the Ninevites were a violent people. And then verse 9, who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 5, we see the people's response and we see cultural repentance. This, this escapes us because we as Americans live in an incredibly individual individualized culture. We, we look at our lives as this is my decision, this is my faith, I own it, and we feel very little corporate responsibility even for one another. And even as church members, we often feel very little corporate responsibility for one another. We look at other people's successes as their successes and other people's failures as their failures. We have a very hard time saying we or our, it's me and my. And so when we look at something like this, we go... Yeah, right. All the people felt bad about it. But perhaps you've been in cultures that are, we say, collectivistic, where they care about one another and they have 
a much larger communal identity than they do an individual identity. Where your last name kind of comes first and your first name comes last. You're identified with your family and with your people much more than you're identified as an individual. And in many parts of the world throughout all of time, that is how people operated. In the group. And in many parts of the world even today, that is how they operate as a group. And they think about things as a group. And you may not even think this in your Uh, in the Bible, but if you read the book of Acts, you see groups and families turning to the Lord. Acts chapter 10, Cornelius' household, he invites over the people in his life to come hear the message. In Acts chapter 10, it seems like the Holy Spirit came on all of them who showed up, that they had this entire response together as a people to the gospel. Now, The response is individual, but the impact, of course, is the group, and the Lord is going to use that And so before we get a little snooty and might go, yeah, but how do we know their conversion was real? We don't have a time machine to go, well, this person's real, this person's not, this person's real, this person's not. But honestly, we shouldn't be the ones who are trying to determine how accurate and authentic someone's conversion is anyways. Who made us the person to kind of go, well, how do you do that? So the people of Nineveh turn. Were there people who probably just turned externally? Sure. You want to say that? Sure. Were there people who probably turned honestly? Yes, absolutely. Why? Because you see the response of the Lord. He relented. And the Lord is not a fan of lip service, is he? He's never been a fan of people just kind of doing whatever they want. He goes, oh yeah, I'll honor that because you're externally pleasing to me. That's not what he does. So clearly, there was a heart response from the people, and the Lord saw that and was merciful on that. And they turn as they hear the judgment that is coming upon them, and they're broken over their sin. Have you ever been broken over your sin? Bothered by it? Uncomfortable? Because you realize that you've harmed others, that you've disparaged them, that you've diminished them, that you've exalted yourself over them, that you have said things that hurt, that people walk on eggshells around you because they're afraid of offending you, because they've felt your wrath, that your coworkers might say things about you, or your church members might say things about you, or you've been the one who has said things about others, and right, all the ways that we realize that we have. You start to sit there for a while and think of the ways in which you've failed. I think brokenness is an appropriate response. And the consequence of what we've done, meaning God's response is just to bring discipline and punishment upon us, judgment upon us. It is a just response to our sin. They see it. And they turn. Messages of judgment don't often come across as pleasant. They aren't that way at first. Because to realize that we receive death for sin, it's a painful realization. To think that God will bring judgment on us, on our home, or on our people is not a good thought. 
But recognizing that judgment is coming is gracious. The Lord has revealed how it will go. He has not hidden that. So as I've said before, we're often able to read ourselves into Jonah and what we don't realize is that we're actually much more like Nineveh as recipients of God's grace because of the preaching that has been done to us and that we were off totally confused about who we were, which we'll get more about in chapter 4 next week. A nation, a people who were arrogant, confident, and wicked. They thought they could do whatever they wanted and they had the power and authority to do so. And their attitude and their hearts brought about God's judgment. However, this judgment resulted in repentance, and that's the right response to realizing that judgment is coming for your own sins. The message continues in 6, 7, 8, and 9, where we see the king's response. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne. He's showing himself as repentant. And then he tells everybody, by the decree of the king, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth. Let them call out mightily. Let everyone turn. And then verse 9, and this is what I love about verse 9, is the reason given. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from us, turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Who knows? The king has the ability to declare things for the people. I say it like this. He can't force their conversion. Conversion's the Lord's. But he could force or create conditions. He can make a decree. And when he does this, he's essentially creating a time of communal mourning. Now, we don't, as a culture, regularly have times of communal mourning. We don't look at it like that. We, very often, might say, well, the flags will be at half-mast for this amount of time, for the death of this person, or for the recognition of this event. But some cultures, even today, will have significant declarations of mourning. God has everybody under people of all kinds of authority. And this is a lost prayer for many Americans. But I think that we can realize that God is doing something, that God is able to do something through governing leaders. Remember 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says this, First of all then I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. What we can see in the response of the king of Nineveh and the centuries later when we see Paul writing to Timothy is this. Pray and be concerned about the spiritual condition of the leaders in authority over you in a governing fashion. This was something that had not honestly even come upon my radar is something to be really legitimately concerned about until this year. And then I started to make my list. As you guys know, I'm a list creator for prayers in part because I'm forgetful. 
so you pray. And so I started to just create lists. Presidents, presidents, president, ele- the election, Congress people, state senators, state representatives, just trying to keep going, how can I pray? Who are they? Who's the board of education person for my area? Judge Hidalgo and the decisions that she is trying to make. I need to pray for these people because God can use the words of governing leaders to affect the minds and hearts of people. The scriptures would say that as much, right? That their hearts are like waters in God's hands. And so we need to realize what exists and what we see even as the king of Nineveh is declaring something for the people. And he calls a mass period of mourning. Spain had recently called 10 days of mourning over the lives lost to COVID-19. 10 days. This is just something simply hard for us to consider. Now, I was interacting with a friend recently, and I just like, what are days of mourning like? And I go, well, it just depends. It's a person who's lived their life largely overseas. It goes, it depends on what it is. Sometimes people just act like, you know, they just kind of do lip service. Other times, businesses are shut down. You can't do anything. And that sounded a lot like what the king of Nineveh is doing. He's just shutting it down. We are going to stop. The king calls a time of mourning and then he gives the reason. And I love the thinking. Who knows? Who knows? God may relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. As a highly religious people, they certainly had a sense of a spiritual life, of idols, of sin. They had, just like you and I do before the Lord, a confused understanding of God, a wrong understanding of God, a rudimentary understanding of God. But then what do they do in their, in their pagan ways, their unbelieving ways? Because again, this is what happens. Like when somebody comes to faith, and I love this, when somebody comes to faith, they don't have your cool developed vocabulary, right? They don't, they don't talk about uh, the doctrines of grace. They're not just like, okay, and then the doctrines of grace are. Like that's not like the first thing you say. We talked about the order of salvation, right? Order of salidus or whatever. Like they don't say that. They don't come across and they're like, it's not like, you know, and, and, you know Lord, I want to I be changed. And then all of a sudden, like Calvin's Institutes drop into their hands. And they have all this language for things. I love seeing people who, who have recently come to faith because the way that they process things is so different. I recently was sitting in a member class and somebody there was new to the faith. And they're like, I've never been to a church before. This is all new to me. And I love that. Because you hear the language of, the reasoning of the king of Nineveh. Who knows what'll happen? I'm like, I don't know what'll happen, but perhaps he's gonna turn and we're not gonna perish. They're throwing themselves upon God's mercy. They're hoping for it and they're responding in the way that seems fit. But we, people who follow Jesus, we know the bigger picture. We know the question is not who knows. I know. I know what God does. Jonah knows what God does. That's going to be the big kerfuffle of chapter four. 
That's the problem with chapter 4. He knows what God will do. As believers, we know his character. So let's not forget to give confidence to people about how the Lord responds to those who respond to him in faith. No, he saves. It's not a, hey, I mean, even, even in Acts chapter two, when they're cut to the heart and they go, what do we do? And he goes, repent, believe in the Lord Jesus, right? Turn to him. Your sins will be forgiven. Because we can have confidence about what God does. We know what God does. Jonah knows what God does. So these questions, will God love me? Will God forgive me? Can I really be restored from all this? Do you know all the wrong that I've done? I don't think you know, pastor. I don't think you're aware of what I've done. If you knew, I was recently talking with a friend who had to follow up with somebody who was feeling bad about things they did like 15 years ago. Just bubbled up. If you knew what I did, you go, I don't need to know what you've done because I know what Christ has done. That's fine. I don't need you to list all your sins out to me. God doesn't even need you to list all your sins out to him. He's not like, oh yeah, thanks, hold on. He's not comparing your list to his. His list will always be more thorough. His knowledge of you will always be better than yours. And so he's not trying to get you to get to his level of knowledge. His goal is to show you the sun. And you will be forgiven. That's what we see in verse 10, his relenting. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. He had mercy on the disaster that he had said would come to them. And he did not do it. Now, sometime later, and Nahum prophesies about this, I believe, but sometime later, Nineveh does receive that judgment. They don't stay turned. But this generation turned. This is our God. We know this and we see this. So I want to ask you one question. How have you responded to God's mercy? How have you responded to God's mercy? Consider what we've seen even thus far. God is merciful to Jonah. He delivered him and he's given him another opportunity at obedience. Where has he done the same for you? For those who have faith in Jesus, who are saved, who are his, does the realization of God's mercy towards you lead you to worship and to rejoice to be glad maybe even to smile because you have been given a position that you could have never climbed up to you're seated with him in the heavenly places There's nowhere else you could be. You are with him. When Paul talks about that, he talks about it like it's going on right now. You're like, well, I kind of just standing right here 
19315 Ella Boulevard. I don't feel like it. No, you are with him. We should rejoice because we've received the mercy of God. But we also see God is merciful to the Ninevites. He held back his anger. And today in Christ, God's wrath was put on Jesus. He has placed our punishment upon him. Jesus has taken it. You cast yourself upon the mercy of God by trusting in Jesus. By saying, I need need that. God, might you relent. And you don't have to go who knows. And your wording doesn't have to be perfect either. Because God is loving. God is gracious. God is forgiving. God is good. How have you responded to God's mercy? How has it changed your obedience, your worship, your countenance, your repentance? Because this is the beautiful God and this is the hope of the gospel that you are never too far gone, too sinful, or too hopeless. Jesus died for you. Are you able to find forgiveness? Who knows? We know. God is merciful.